for August 13th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 528. You're only making people illegal. Overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The uh, the overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet, but it's like it's like we were punished for a, a crime we didn't even commit, and we were encased in uh cryogenically frozen in a block of ice. Uh, and uh, impregnated with uh, our our minds seeded with the uh, the idea of knitting sweaters, afghans, uh, you know, all all kinds of things, and then awaken decades later in order to subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. So, uh, hey, sometimes we talk on this podcast about classic movies, and and this week is one of those times. It's a, it's a time in which we are going to talk about the classic, classic 1993 film Demolition Man, suggested by my co-pod pastor, Pete Fenzel. Hey, Pete, how are you doing? You know, Matt, I'm doing great because I got to watch Demolition Man again, and every time it is better than the last. Yeah, it is a delight. He's the uh, he's the I'm the blonde one, so I'm the uh, the Wesley Snipes on this podcast. I'm Matt Rather. That is Pete Fenzel, the Sylvester Stallone. He will bring me to justice, or or spoilers for Demolition Man. Spoilers for Demolition Man. Sever my frozen head and throw it at the ground, <laughs> so that it uh, it erupts in an explosion of cherry flavored slushy right there on the ground. I want I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that to be the, the climactic moment. But, but, you know, some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. Uh, but if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, Taco Bell is also great <laughs> and would suffice. Pete, what what the heck is going on with this movie? Well, okay, so first of all, that poem is not entirely irrelevant to this movie, but I'll put a pin in that. We can come back to it later. I know. So this is a podcast for people who've seen Demolition Man, and it's also a podcast for people who haven't seen Demolition Man. Feel free to go watch it first. We're going to explain everything that happens. We're going to talk about everything that happens. Uh, we might not actually, like, recount every detail of everything that happens, and then this happened, and then this happened. But this will be a spoilery podcast. We will consider the film in total. But it's worth talking about, I think, even if you haven't seen it. And uh, I just I recommend it. I just I think this is one of the really great, really, truly underrated movies as a cultural artifact and as a sort of piece of I guess I would part, call it part of the pseudo mock scriptural subgenre of literature where people come up with these highly symbolic and highly metaphorical descriptions of society that are supposed to impart in you ideas of virtue and vice, but which are also jokes because they are playing off of other ideas of virtue and vice in society, and those ideas are wanting in some way. But on a very, very surface level, the movie Demolition Man is about a cop and a crook. And the crook is Wesley Snipes, and the cop is Sylvester Stallone. They're named Simon Phoenix and John Spartan. You can guess which one is the crook and which is the cop, right? Uh, and 
the uh, the two of them are frozen in a new experimental prison. This takes place in the year 1996, which is three years after the making of this movie. Far so very in the future. Far, <laughs> far in the future. Yeah. The, the movie presupposes that the violence that erupts in California in the early 90s continues and worsens up through the mid-90s uh, until basically a state of war. And the toughest cop and the toughest crook in this war zone uh, get involved in an explosion that kills a bunch of hostages, and they both go into the brand new cryo prison system. And they're both frozen for 40 years. Uh, the, the criminal for things that he very obviously has done and the cop for things that he has been sort of collaterally responsible for. And they are both woken up in the future, in the year 2032, right? Uh, and uh, and they find a California. And, and, of course, this only takes place within this enclave of San Angeles, which is really important. It only takes place in one sort of super city. We don't know anything else that's happened anywhere else in the world. But within this super city, everybody has gotten super duper nice and healthy and passive and like smiley face buttons and California lovey-dovey hippy-dippy. And they are fish out of water, right? The, the, the crook can run ragged over anybody. Uh, he can just destroy anything he wants. None of the policemen can stop him because none of them have actually faced an actual crime in 20 years. And the cop is very much the loose cannon whose methods can't be uh, dealt with in, within the system and, and so on and so forth. And so it's a story about how, on the very, very surface, the sort of gutsy masculine aggression and disregard for l human life and rules that comes with being an action hero or an action villain is something that the sort of lovey-dovey, hippy-dippy idea of a future in which there is no violence or sadness, uh, uh, a similar sort of idea – in the movie uh, Mars Attacks, right, which is that, you know, people are super nice in, in the 90s and we've all gotten over the idea of being aggressive to our enemies and we want to open our, our hearts to our enemies and everybody should be nice to each other. And it's this sort of weird fascistic spin on it in this movie where, like, everybody's nice and everybody is obsessed with health and there's a lot of other changes to society, which we'll talk about, but they can't deal with the real criminal. And, and they call Sylvester Stallone and they, they, they thaw him out to deal with the real criminal. And it's about the culture clash between the person who's actually capable of great violence and the cop who is capable of utilizing great violence to counter that person. And it intertwines with a, a kind of undercurrent and a, and a sort of overarching plot that this society of niceness and kindness and wellness is actually an oppressive fascist state uh, and that there's like an underbelly. And that, so there's these two axes, right? There's like the axis of cop and crook. Um, and then, well, there's three. There's, well, there's a lot of them, right? There's the axis of the good guys and the bad guys. There's the axis of the tough guys and the wimpy guys. And then there's the axis of the higher and the lower, of the rich and the poor, of the people who dominate and the people who set the rules, and then the people who are outside and subaltern outside of society and who want to live with some degree of kind of freedom and self-expression. And so, like, this is, is a huge, rich tapestry of cultural reference and symbol and joke and action sequence. There's lots of devices that do fun things and lots of really fun, memorable, iconic things. But that's the basic idea is it's tough crook, tough cop, namby-pamby future, right, with all of the sort of gender politics that that includes, uh, which is uh, covering up for a fascist police state, right? Uh, so I'll hand it over to you, Matt. Like, what, there's many angles and there's sort of different continua on which this movie kind of intersects with its ideas and expresses them. I think it's a great 
it's a satire, I think, but it's also more of a mock epic than a satire in the sense that it is, uh, yeah, it has things that it is trying to tear down, but it is also has things it's trying to express. And so it's kind of doing both at the same time. But but I want you to pick pick an axis in Demolition Man to explore uh, so that we can kick off our, our discussion of its various kind of uh, degrees and virtues. Yeah, I mean, it's when you were talking about the scriptural project or the kind of the scriptural uh, aspects of Demolition Man, the the phrase mock epic popped into my mind as well, because one of the things that's being skewered a little bit is the action movie, right? Because action movies depend on taking place against a backdrop in which the kind of violence that an action movie traffics in makes sense, right? Where it's justified or where you can see the point of it. And in San Angeles of the future, and actually not too far in the, I think like 20 years in the future for us. Um, but uh, in San Angeles, right, the, the, it's absurd. It's, it's just patently absurd the kinds of violence, the kinds of blowing things up that are, are brought to bear on this, you know, uh, this sleepy little beach community. And that like, um, or I should say beach megalopolis because it stretches from uh, San Diego to Santa Barbara. And that's a long, uh, that, that's a lot of, that's a lot of prime coastal real estate there. Um, so that it doesn't, it, it just, it doesn't make sense. Right. And that like it, 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 and it mines this for laughs, both in the fish out of water aspect of, um, you know, of the absurdity, which is that, you know, Snipes and Stallone are just out of time, right? They're, they're set loose in a time that, that really can't contain their antics. And also like, oh, look at the, the, the stupid Namby Pamby San Angelians scurrying for their lives when, uh, you know, Stallone crashes a, uh, what is it? An Oldsmobile through the, uh, you know, through a plate glass window and, you know, drives out onto the, to the sidewalk, which is, perfectly wonderful uh action movie you know sort of legacy of the 80s action movie type of stuff right like and there are great there's just like there's a stunt where a guy jumps out of a helicopter that's rad there are some explosions and this is before you know most of the fire that you see most of the explosions that you see on on tv and even a lot in movies are fake it's all it's all cgi and you can kind of tell uh that the things aren't actually burning when you look at them and and this like they blow up a building it's fantastic (laughs) you know uh there's a great i just like uh, there was a scene pete that i paused and replayed a couple times it's right before the final battle when he's going into the stallone is going into the cryo prison and he uh he like stands there sort of in three-quarter profile you know cocks his chin to one side flips a switch the the door opens behind Behind him, framing him in this glowing blue backlight, making him look like more like a force of nature than a mere mortal. And then he like checks out the other way, you know, holds his, you know, holds his pistol up next to his head, like it turns in a ball with balletic grace and like heads through the door. And I just had to watch that like five or six times because it was just so, so perfect. A, uh, you know, a kind of an action movie thing. There's 
also in that last fight is a fantastic slow-mo diving sideways while firing two guns <laughs> right in in yep. a way uh, you know and his body is positioned and you know he's going to land on whatever mattress is is right off screen whatever foam rubber pad they have for him right but then it cuts to a slightly different angle and, uh, you know, the motion continues. So your brain kind of, uh, your brain kind of fills in the gaps and he finishes in kind of a dive roll kind of position when he was to- totally not, uh, going in that trajectory. And I thought, God, God bless this filmmaking, which is largely gone, you know, from our, uh, the uh, skyscraper, uh, for all its many virtues was, was almost too bound to the laws of physics, right? Mm -hmm. To the laws of realism and, and what actually could happen when you dive off a crane into a skyscraper. So. Yes. So another uh, dimension of what you're describing, this degree to which demolition man is an action movie. It is a mock epic action movie that is simultaneously glorying in the craft of action movie and the symbolism of action movie and the sort of weight and power of action movie, but also uh, tearing it down and making fun of it and show, showing how it doesn't really belong in the real world. Uh, one of the elements of this is Sandra Bullock's character, who is a future cop who uh, is, is craves action and excitement, but doesn't actually get to solve any crimes and like watches old 20th century movies. She has a Lethal Weapon 3 poster in her <laughs> office. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, just awesome and says she's learned to kick people for watching Jackie Chan movies. Yeah. And, and so she's, she's always saying like, Oh man, this is so exciting. This is so great. I get to hang out with this real cop and, and do real cop stuff. Right. And, and he's like, Oh, I don't know. This is actually really unpleasant. There's a lot of people dying. Um, there's a but couple then, but of then she's interrogations. She's, yeah, al- yeah. she's also kind of a play on the woman in one of these movies where it's just yep. like, oh, I'm so exhilarated by the <laughs> by the violence we've just had. Would you like to have sex? Which turns out to be more like a video game, more like a kind of VR uh VR video game with a with a couple of shots of boobs, right? Uh in in it. Which apparently you could do in a actually I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, what this movie was rated i'd have to look it up on imdb at you know at the time but like um you know that this is uh that this is the other thing that that her character is doing and even at the end she it's kind of like riley remarked on well like i i wanted to be part of that fantastic action sequence as well like why why did you have to knock me out right like what which is (laughs) which is not a great way to uh to deal with a, a colleague i suppose you know um rated r for non-stop action violence and for strong language <laughs> today it would also be for brief nudity and th- there are a couple of i mean if you're going to if you're going to have an r in an 80s legacy movie um you got to see some boobs uh for sure right you have to exploit you have to exploit the women if you're going to be in this particular tradition of filmmaking Demolition Man does have one of the all-time pointless uh, brief nudity shots in an R-rated movie, which is that at one point he gets a phone call that's a wrong number from a naked woman. And, and, and it, it, the, the way in current context, it just sort of passes without incidents. And it's like, wow, that was pointless. And where it's like he's, he's sitting in his room and he gets a call and he turns on the video call and it's a naked woman talking to her, her husband or something. And then she's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. And in retrospect, you have to consider, oh, yeah, the idea of having a video call in 1993 was still science fiction. 
so I guess another dimension that Demolition Man exists on is as an accurate prediction of the future. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where it predicts a lot of things pretty accurately. These, these, kids, yeah. these kids today and they're sexting. It's always interesting kind of looking at these things. What they imagine is what they imagine is better and what they don't imagine is better concomitant with the things that they imagine are better. I didn't say that right. What I'm saying is that like there are crystal clear video calls, something we still haven't realized today, even in this area, uh, this era of FaceTime. But uh, the problem of wrong numbers hasn't been solved. Yeah. Right. And that that's right. like that those are that that they couldn't imagine that it would be anything other than like typing, uh, typing a number into a thing, though, like, you know, her her hands seemed occupied with whatever she was doing, drying, <laughs> drying off with a towel after a shower or something like that to uh, to dial. So it is a weird thing. I mean, I guess it's temporary housing. So maybe that phone number belonged to someone else before uh, before it belonged to till Sylvester Stallone. But the thing. A thing that struck me, right, is that there are two visions of the future here. One is 1996 and the other is like the 2030s or something like that, right? And that 1996 is a is a like Beirut-like war zone, you know, um, that I guess outside of the Civil War has never quite existed in America quite in, in that way. And it's interesting to think about like what it gets right and what it what it gets wrong or the threads that go into this uh the threads that go into this sort of urban dystopia where where wesley snipes um you know who is a vision of like uh black inner city lawlessness right Right. and and like a lot of uh, there are kind of a lot of cultural threads that that converge in that particular character but he's like barricaded into a uh, he's barricaded into a what is it like a hospital or something like that? Uh, I don't even know what that building is at the beginning of the. Is it, the, is it supposed to be the airport? Or are yeah. they supposed to be at the airport? I think something something like that. Yeah. But he's bar- he's got this kind of like desolate area that that is has been completely militarized, automatic weapons, um, yeah. anti aircraft. He has like flak guns. Yeah, yeah. He has like he has all sorts. He has military gear protecting this fortress from any sort of incursion by even like high grade military infiltration. Right. But, Other than Sylvester Stallone in a bungee cord is the yeah. only thing that can get it's past to all say of this. he didn't he didn't uh, anticipate a solitary police officer bungee jumping onto the roof <laughs> of yeah. his uh, of his building, and uh, yeah, and that he's like it's not even clear to me what his game is. Like what he's he's just like he's and and like that's actually that's actually important. He has no program of. Uh, you know, it's not like he's even a sort of drug kingpin or something where there is a lot of organization put into building a business, even if it's an entirely criminal business. It takes a lot to put those levels of, of hierarchy, of organization, of supply chain, of distribution, of like, uh, you know, managing the money, of sort of dealing with, with, uh, you know, corporate malfeasance of various kinds, right? Like, it's not even that. He's just nuts. Right. And and it's a great, you know, he's he's a great sort of scenery chewing, uh, crazy performance, you know, a, a uh, uh, Pacino-esque, right, uh, scenery chewing crazy performance, both in the first scene um, in the, the airport hospital blow up building and in the, the last scene in the cryo prison, right, that that uh, is, you know, um, is pretty fantastic. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll say I'll I'll add to what you're saying in the sense that Wesley Snipes' character in Demolition Man, sure, he's definitely a vision of black inner city violence, and he's a he's also a blown out parody of that kind of character. So I wouldn't necessarily say he's just crazy and has no sort of organization, but they don't portray it very much in the movie. And you kind of have to drill into some of the details that the movie tells you about what he's doing to learn a little bit more about him and also to learn about the ways in which people misunderstand him, which I think are important to sussing out the kind of difficult to grasp heart of this movie, which, of course, as we mentioned, flows in a lot of different directions because the surface level reading of the movie as the sort of machismo over Namby Pambiness is, I don't think, uh, really adequate to explaining the movie and is something of a sort of sideshow to some of the deeper stuff that's going on. Uh, so, so one thing that's pretty clear is that Simon Phoenix, played by Wesley Snipes, is a riff on Nino Brown, played by Wesley Snipes in the 1991 movie New Jack City. Uh, he's done the same thing that Nino Brown did in New Jack City, which he has found a building. And in the case of Nino Brown, it's like a big housing project. In the case of uh, Simon Phoenix, it's like a large industrial park or something of that nature. He has turned it into a fortress and he has taken hostages. And uh, in the case of Nino Brown, he has this its a sort of idea. The people living in the housing project, he has a great speech about it. They either are loyal customers to the crack operation that he's installing there. And I don't mean like a well-run operation. I mean an operation for the making and distribution of crack cocaine because New Jack City is rooted in the real world, even though it's also fantastical in its own way. Um, And uh, they're either loyal customers or they're live-in hostages. And there's the sense of you're not sure whether the people who live in the building are innocent or guilty. And the law certainly doesn't know how to treat them appropriately. Uh, And that's one of the big problems in sort of New Jack City is the society in which this is all taking place. And with Simon, with uh, Phoenix, they make they go to the trouble of saying that he has intercepted a city bus, right, or a touring bus, that he has he has made an ultimatum to all outsiders. He has declared an independent state of some kind over some degree of territory in California. We learn this from like a, a. exposition reading of a history book in the future scenes that he's declared a sort of fiefdom of his own within California. He has told everybody that no one is allowed to come in. And then when this bus goes in, he takes all the people hostage and, uh, and he's, and Sylvester Stallone is, is trying to get them out. Right. And, uh, and this is interesting for a, a bunch of reasons, this idea that, that he is going, that he is sort of, uh, the owner of this society now, but when we see him, it's just him and the society is just fire. It's just buckets of gasoline and barrels of C4 and blowtorches and cigarettes, right? And you said sometimes it ends in fire. Sometimes it ends in ice. You even mentioned uh, somebody dying twice, right? Well, this is the death in fire that they experience in Wesley Snipes' world of fire, where he has this kingdom that only has fire in it and no people. And uh, and and later on in the movie, Wesley Snipes is going to make a pretty legitimate uh, effort at uh, staging a coup and overthrowing the government, which includes like appointing ministers, I guess. Right. So there's like there's some. But of course, this is also after he's had his brain augmented uh, in the sort of passage from the past to the future, which we can also explain. But the point being that, like, yes, he is crazy. And and yes, he he is not a Stringer Bell figure like from The Wire. He's not like planning everything. But 
it's sort of taken for granted that he has the capability to run a criminal empire, sort of like a Batman villain. You know, it's this idea that like like the penguin doesn't really seem like somebody who would really be able to like manage a lot of people. But we just sort of take it for granted in the Batman movies that he's going to be able to do it under the Batman TV shows and whatever. And it's sort of similar with with Simon Phoenix, especially in his overalls. when He's going around his or, or in his outfit made entirely of tires. Did you catch that? It's like different kinds of tires. Yeah. He has this like like armor that he wears. Uh, this post-apocalyptic armor that he wears that this I don't know where he even gets it. Huh. Um, I think he buys it in the sewers. Uh, but but the, yeah, the point being that like Simon Phoenix is the, the dictatorial figurehead of a society in which dwells only fire, rage and suffering. And right. Death. And I mean, the right. name, you know, the name Phoenix sort of reborn, yeah. reborn in fire. You know, yeah. he sort of comes back. Uh, he's sort of reborn as a better version of himself, you know, and he, he's sort of associated. And I think that kind of the flame, like the tongue of the flame, the dye job, the bleach job that he has on his hair, you know, is like the, the, the little dancing kind of the little dancing tip of the, uh, the tip of the flame. Um, which uh, yeah. IMDb trivia tells me was the inspiration for Dennis Rodman beginning to dye his hair uh, right after the right after the film came out. He sort of stole the look from from Wesley Snipes. But then, so the other the other future, like there's a second future, right? And the second future is also interesting, and and it's interesting to me, like largely for its sort of fascistic its fascistic tendencies, right? Like the the sort of hyper rationalism of the uh, the hyper rationalism, the kind of the the perfect enlightenment utopia of like we only do the things that are good for us here. We all, you know, we all simultaneously will what the state wills, right? And that that like uh, and and it's not the the world building is not um, super robust. <laughs> <laughs> let's say <laughs> but uh but the, it's more it's more elusive it's more satirical and it does a lot it does a lot more with suggestion i mean to me the money line for this this strain of the movie is i mean it's uh, it's referenced a bunch of times like the constant uh the constant alarm klaxon when when sylvester stallone swears um which hap- just happens, you know, and you stop hearing it at a certain point when, uh, but, um, it's yeah, when the, they- the idea being that swearing is now illegal and you get a ticket for it. And there are computer sensors everywhere that listen to everyone's words. And if you use a bad word, they find you and they print a ticket that you have to pull out of the thing. Right. And it's this thing that's constantly going on throughout the entire movie, which has a lot of swears in it, where every time somebody swears, there's like a the klaxon, as you said, and the little ticket comes out, which is a delightful little touch. So right. I just wanted to flesh this out a little bit for the people who haven't had the pleasure of watching this. Movie. No, yeah, you got to yeah. watch it. Uh, Alexa, am I allowed? to say bad words all right she she says she doesn't have an opinion on that i don't know if she <laughs> if she came through on the microphone they haven't installed that patch yet it's coming don't worry yeah absolutely <laughs> well yeah they'll start and they'll just debit they have your credit card so like they'll just you know debit you a dollar uh it'll be the virtual it'll be the the bezosian virtual swear jar you know mm-hmm. um so uh when they go out to dinner at Taco Bell together um and uh Stallone asks for salt and uh and Sandra Bullock says well salt is bad for you so it's illegal. 
Yeah. Right. And like the idea that things that are bad for you are illegal is makes a ton of sense on its face. Right. Like why, why would we allow in society things that harm us, you know, and that's, uh, uh, the, I don't know. It it seems like from a certain point of view, if you don't know anything about people, right, from a certain point of view, that proposition should be self-evidently true. Everybody ought to uh, everybody ought to just agree with that. Now, the the Dennis Leary character makes a big impassioned speech about how he wants to have a big porterhouse steak and a Cuban cigar, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, drowned in drowned in, or in fries, drowned in ketchup or mayonnaise or whatever, you know, um, he sort of lists off all of these kind of pleasurable things, largely having to do with consumption with like the body bodily pleasures um like not the pleasures of like ascetic meditation you know like not the not the pleasures of of reading a good book or of uh various kinds of like abstemious self-denial or something like that no you know he wants a he wants a, a steak and a, a glass of wine and a cuban cigar and like all of all of these things and that like no one no one should be able to tell him that he can't do that, even if those things are harmful to himself and by extension harmful, uh, harmful to the society that, that he's a part of. And this, I mean, this is an interesting thing. And this, this is like the, this is, um, sort of the signal that the that the society the utopian society is a little too fascistic uh that the 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 version of peace is actually not really a version of peace where the waters have been quieted but but more a version of peace in which the the kind of the waters of desire the raging waters of desire have been suppressed more like and that uh and that that like um that and that this is why this is why it's bad but i kind of want to i mean i want to dig into this uh, a little bit because there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of false consciousness around these particular things. Like take smoking as an example. I've heard like very impassioned defenses of smoking on classist ground, on, on grounds, on class-based grounds that the, the, you know, prohibition on smoking and the kind of the social, uh, you know, the, the current kind of looking down on smoking and people who smoke and, and the sort of shame, um, around it now is classist that it's a, uh, it's a wealthy person's, um, you know, looking down on one of the few pleasures that, that poor people, uh, can afford. I mean, not, not anymore, given the, the ways cigarettes are taxed to hell and back now. I mean, you, what a, pack of smokes costs like 20 bucks in New York city now, but, but, uh, you know, that, that like traditionally, this is the thing, but, but it sort of does not take into account that there, there are like powerful moneyed interests aligned behind the, uh, a line behind the cigarettes, right? Like the, the cigarettes are not a naturally occurring phenomenon, uh, that the bad, uh, you know, that the, the bad elites are trying to deny you. And yes, absolutely. There is a, there is a sort of elitism. There is a sort of classism to it, but that's not the sort of whole story. Same thing, thing could be said about alcohol, which is an enormous industry. Same thing could be said about your porterhouse steak, right? Like, like beef, an enormous industry in, uh, uh, ranching in the United States of America that that like um, there are a lot of 
there, there are a lot of things like this. And so like the idea, the idea that these things are symbols of your freedom, right? Where they are, they are sort of merely symbols. Well, they are, maybe they are symbols of your freedom, kind of very local to your own experience ad hoc to a particular situation or to your own particular thing. But if you zoom out to the, let's call it the 30 or 40,000 foot level, right? They, they are more than that, right? They're, they're, they're symbols of a, um, they're symbols of a, uh, a uh, a system that constrains the idea of what you think of as freedom uh and presents a set of false choices right like and and this is the genius of capitalism right that it that it can make you feel very proud about your place in a set of false choices and it it this is this is the thing this is the kind of the the intellectual a lot of conundrum. other systems of living can do the same thing yeah by the way. sure absolutely <laughs> but that yeah. like uh you know that that this is this is the i i think like this is the sort of the hill the that the satire of demolition man can't quite um can't quite uh, climb right, like, and and is not necessarily willing to look in the face. Akin to like, why is the why is the um, you know the the sociopathic violence of the Sylvester Stallone character somehow okay, right? And the sociopathic violence of the Wesley Snipes character somehow not okay. I mean, I think there are answers to that, but I think you could probably make the case that it's a little more uncomfortably close um, than you'd like. Though, though I know that you, you have an argument that they are actually not the the appropriate pairing. They're actually not the appropriate dichotomy in the movie, but that Wesley Snipes should be considered uh, in light of a different character, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and this is a good jumping off point because there's a little joke. I think it's a joke. You be the judge, Matt, on whether you think this is a joke. The the whole society of San Angeles, which has banned smoking, meat, salt, kissing, any sort of body on body sexuality has been banned due to a variety of different viruses that have been killing lots of people. Uh, all the cars uh, have man are filled with foam when you get in an accident to protect you. Uh, but what else is banned? Uh, well, graffiti is another subject, right? Uh, yeah, books. Sw- swearing, it, right. Yep, yep, books, swearing. So there's a lot of things of a variety of kind of greater or lesser degrees that have been banned. And this has all been put in place by this guy named Dr. Cocteau, who is uh, who is a biological and genetic engineer who has determined his, – his sort of way of entering the sort of society is he's the one who develops this idea that we freeze criminals. And then while we're, they're asleep, we manipulate the synapses in their brain to change their brains and rehabilitate them. And then if they get you know 70 years of that, they wake up and then they can be functional members of society. So he's literally going into your brain and saying, you don't want to shoot guns. You want to learn how to macrame, right? You need to – you want to learn how to take care of kittens, right? And well, Sylvester Stallone, it's a joke, is imparted with uh, the fondness for knitting. And they say that it's it's a that they get it from your DNA. They read your DNA and they determine from your DNA what you would actually enjoy doing that would be good for society. And it's funny that Sylvester Stallone gets knitting because it's the it's the combination of mending things that are broken and like protecting things with sweaters, which is sort of similar to what he does as a cop. But but anyway, uh, Doctor Cocteau. 
has his little island of engineered people. It's all of the people are microchipped. It's strongly implied, if not outright said, that they have been mentally conditioned in some way. Right. Right. That there has been some sort of technology used on their brains to make them like this. Uh, Dr. Cocteau is a play on the island of Dr. Moreau. But he is a cock, right? Is, is I think the joke <laughs> <laughs> that he's just a jerk. He's a he's a he's a big old wanker because he wants nobody to have a good time, and he's a total jerk about it to everybody. Um, and so, uh, and his vision, right, is for a society that is exclusionary, uh, where and like like you just said, you can set rules for what you think is legal or illegal, but unless they come with some, with, unless they come with the sort of a uh, reasonable expectation that people will change their behavior to meet the rules, what you really end up doing is making people legal or illegal. And so it's the question of, well, how much without necessarily putting microchips in people's bodies and screwing up their brains with 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 uh, sci fi torture, how much can you really force, quote unquote, bad people to become, quote unquote, good people, people who are not like how you want them to be to become people like you want them to be? And the and the answer that the movie comes out with is not very much. Right? Is that like uh, Wesley Snipes even says, right, like you can't you can't uh, stop people from being and he, he drops some swear words and gets uh, some fines from the. Uh, from the little ticket machines. And so, so yeah, in the urge to make a a sort of perfect population, he, he doesn't make the population perfect. He picks out the population that he can make perfect and he excludes everybody else. And so what he creates is something of a compound, right? Where everybody who's in this compound participates in his social organization. You might say all these people are his loyal customers. And yet at the same time, they are his live-in hostages, right? Uh, in much the same way that the people in the housing project that Nino Brown runs in New Jack City are both supportive of the crack enterprise and also can be just totally thrown under the bus and sacrificed uh, in, in order to stop somebody from stopping the crack enterprise. And, and Cocteau actually does this. This this is one of the big twists in the story is that Cocteau is the one who wakes up Wesley Snipes because he wants to use Wesley Snipes capacity for violence for first one thing and then the other. First, he wants to kill this Dennis Leary guy, this guy named Edgar Friendly, who is an intellectual, charismatic intellectual and a potential leader of a revolutionary resistance to Cocteau's regime. Uh, Dennis Leary doesn't think of himself as a revolutionary leader, but Cocteau sees him as a threat and wants him murdered. And so he wakes up Wesley Snipes to go kill him. And once he sees the effect that Wesley Snipes' violence is having, he realizes that he can use it to accelerate a sort of final solution in which he will genocide all the people who he does not like and accelerate the conditioning of everybody else. And and in this sense, he's set up his own fiefdom. We don't know anything that happens outside of this enclave of San Angeles. We have no idea what the rest of the country is like. And uh, we just know what it's like inside, right? And in that sense, it's a lot like the compound that Wesley Snipes is in at the beginning of the movie when when Sylvester Stallone has to bungee jump down in there to try to rescue the people who are just on a bus in much the same way that that Sylvester Stallone kind of has to bungee jump into the future in order to stop uh, Wesley Snipes and also to stop Cocteau from what they're doing in this sort of uh, the genocide, really, because both stories, if allowed to run to their conclusion, end with the person who owns the fiefdom killing all the undesirable hostages. And for who are who are outsiders who right. are not desirable. I mean, they're, right? they're, they're sorry. Pa- pausing only to yeah. say that that in 1996, 
it's governed by the opposition sort of inside outside or maybe like city city country and it, it's also kind of the the opposition black white is also mapped onto yes. it and it's it's particularly rich right as a society that we would create a fearsome image of wesley snipes who wants to kind of eliminate all the white people Right. right. When yeah. uh, when actually the the threat trend in society moved the other way. We want to eliminate these these. Um, oh, God. What was the word in the 90s? Super predators. You know <laughs> that like and like we, we were developing a, a sort of racist vocabulary of kind of 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 othering and devaluing uh, uh, people who were responding to their impression uh, oppression. Um in you know frankly entirely predictable ways and that like that the 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 sort of the nightmare vision of that is that they actually they you know actually want to do that that to us in in the future future it's uh, governed by the the uh, opposition up down right and is actually a little a little allegory of the soul a little uh, a little bit of freud's civilization and its discontents um you know played out uh, allegorically in the in the you know uh subterranean geography of this film Right, right, right. And it's like uh, it's it's Wesley Snipes is the fire society and he's the black society and Cocteau is the ice society and the white society. But in their sort of ultimate and in in their ultimate aims. So as of like 1993, when this movie comes out, the big social fear that people are responding to in Moss is the fear that society is going to become increasingly lawless. And as because of like the uh, the riots in L.A. and all the other stuff that was going on at the time. And um, and then but the countervailing trend is the Giuliani trend, right, of everything getting like uh, more broken windows, policing, more social control. Let's kick out all the homeless people from Times Square so we can put in a Madame Tussauds and a Disney show right. and a yeah. Disney Broadway show. Right. This is all happening in the early 90s. We're actually going and to think, stop. Yeah. We're going to stop drug deals in Washington Square Park with a giant fascist panopticon, uh, right. you know, NYPD trailer that was just double wide parked permanently in Washington yeah. Square Park, though that did not Stop someone from trying to sell me and my mom pot when I went on a college visit there in 1997. So, <laughs> F you, Giuliani. It didn't work at all. It turns out you're only making people illegal, right? That's what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and and so, yes, yeah, so it's interesting in that Sylvester Stallone, the movie wants you on a surface level to see Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes as two sides of the same coin, where it's like we need to get a, a maniac to catch a maniac. Right. You, have the, the you, have the, you have the black haired Stallone, right? And yeah. the white haired Wesley Snipes. <laughs> yep. And you yep. want, they're, they're supposed to be the opposition that matters in this film. Yeah. And there's a flaming pearl at the end. So it's all about Taoism. No, <laughs> uh, but no, there's there actually the is, there are those spherical cryogenic devices of some kind suspended from the ce- from the ceiling. And one like, uh, falls down though. I like that. The, I like that the cryogenic pods, the, like the ice, the kind of lucite like, uh, ice pod that you're encased in. It looks like a kind of like ex- extruded canned gelatinous thing. It looks yeah. like if you squeeze out, a. uh, um, 
if your if your family was like my family and didn't like cooking growing up, uh, my mother used to to kind of wiggle out the jiggly cranberry sauce in the shape of the can, you know, onto the the sil- the cylinder of that, uh, including the like the ridges of the can or like a, a can of cat food or something something like that. That they are these little hockey puck sized uh, little hockey puck sized uh, things. Also, some some real good Stallone taint right at the beginning of. The- <laughs> <laughs> right at the beginning of the movie. I don't think a, a, a contemporary action star would let you show him from that angle. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm not and sure so, yeah, we so, have a contemporary action star, frankly, but, but you know, yeah. that, I digress. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we, we, that, we do play that. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> but yeah, but the idea that, like, uh, you think of Stallone and Wesley Snipes as the counterpoints, but really Wesley Snipes and Cocteau are counterpoints. One of them is this sort of caricature of extremely vilified and kind of like an internalized vilification of blackness. And the other one is like an extremely uh, dangerous, right, form of whiteness that is oppressive and has horrible consequences and literally starves people to death, but is uh, approved of generally and seems nice and seems pleasant, right? Uh, and I guess to just to, to sort of quickly touch back on what you said, the people who are like running the factory farms would be oriented towards Cocteau because they're trying to sort of engineer uh, a society of general prosperity, right, uh, in a sort of massive way, uh, in a sort of organ, and especially the way in which they, how they treat the animals. But but I guess this takes me to like one of my favorite scenes in the movie uh, on this watching, which is the scene where Sylvester Stallone eats a rat burger. Right. This scene is so great. Oh, my God. This scene is so great. You know the scene I'm talking about, right, Matt? The, the, the one where he eats a rat burger? Yes, I saw that scene in this film. Yeah, exactly. So, so okay. So Sylvester Stallone is hunting for clues to try to catch Simon Phoenix. And he goes down into the sewers where Dennis Leary and his large society of uh, punkish, unwashed in their various trench coats and Mad Max outfits uh, all live, right? And they have things like the old Oldsmobile classic car sitting around. And they have, you know, this sort of free music. It's like a better and more plausible version of Zion from the Matrix. Uh, but it's also funny. And, and Zion from the Matrix should be funnier than it is but it's like the sort of heart of of a kind of free thinking peoples who are living more authentically than the people who are living under cocteau's yoke up north as it were uh but he goes to this booth Sylvester Stallone is really hungry and he smells something right and he's with sandra bullock of course and benjamin bratt who is the other sort of nice cop from the future he smells Sylvester Stallone smells something they think is disgusting but he's like oh it smells great and he finds a little booth like a little kiosk where this lady who I think I think not coincidentally looks a lot like Frida Kahlo. She is a Mexican woman, I believe, with uh, well, she's presented as as Spanish speaking. And, and most of the Spanish speaking references in the movie are uh, Mexican specifically, uh, although there's probably there might be some stuff from other parts of, of Latin America. But I think that there is like a uh, there's like a, a Pancho Villa reference. Right. There's like a couple of different references through the movie to like Mexican Revolution. But there's this this woman there with a unibrow, right, with a dark unibrow, and kind of a funky artistic hat and a kind of sort of scarves. Right. And she looks kind of like Frida Kahlo. And uh, Sylvester Stallone orders and she's selling hamburgers, right? Sylvester Stallone orders the hamburger from her and finds out that the hamburger is not made from cow, but is in fact made from rats Uh, because it's like, well, do you see cows around here? Where do you think the rats come from? And there's this little exchange where he thanks her where she thanks him for the business because he trades a Sandra Bullock's watch for the hamburger and for a bottled beer of unknown provenance and no label. Right. Um, 
and and he and he thanks she thanks him in Spanish and he says you're welcome in Italian which I think is just like wonderful little moment right he says prego he doesn't say th- he doesn't say you're welcome he says prego um, or Donata, right? Like, he, you yeah. know, yeah, there, there were a lot of options and that's the one he goes with. Yeah. And he goes with the one that's sort of authentic to him. Right. And there's this, you know, the idea kicks around a lot that, uh, you know, whiteness per se is not so much an ethnicity as like a participation. It's like a thing that different groups of people who have arrived in America at different times have kind of gotten on board with in slightly different ways. But it's always kind of an overlay to some sort of underlying culture or a culture that might be kind of more authentic to their lived experience. And the overlay is kind of more economic in nature and more about kind of social organization. And so like the idea that you have to like get up in the morning and put on a tie and shirt and go to work, which is, of course, an idea in decline as both Ties and jobs have been in decline for people, but uh, but this idea that like uh, that that you have to that Cocteau's world is the caricature of whiteness, where you know swearing and mediating and salt aren't allowed, and everybody has to be healthy and happy and smiling all the time, and also fascists. Uh, Sylvester Stallone is sort of uh, able to discard this in his interaction with Frida Kahlo and speak to not his participation, but his ethnicity, uh, which is a brown ethnicity, right? Uh, and, and which is, I mean, in terms of all of the dynamics, in terms of especially like how much Wesley Snipes' caricature is a racist caricature, this is like a really interesting moment. And the little slips of kind of Latin American pro-revolutionary sentiment throughout the movie are also an interesting moment because you're kind of being cued into the idea that these are parodies, right? That like, we're not necessarily endorsing that this is the way the world should be, but we're parodying the way that you think about it and the way that the 90s are thinking about it, which turns out to be the way that the 2000s, the 2010s have also been thinking about it in a lot of ways. Uh, but I just think it's a great, I love the idea that the rat burger is, that the burger is made from the things that the people have access to in the place where they live. It's basically a pro-artisanality sketch that like prefigures the entire artisanality movement of the 21st century towards sort of like authentic homemade grass-fed meats uh, as, as a sort of solution to the factory farming you see, problem. You see any grass around here? <laughs> That's true. It's not grass. Yeah. It's not. It's, uh, it's not. It's not artisanal. It's uh, artisanal meat. Yes. for sure. Because <laughs> what do you think that rat is eating? Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, what is he demolishing? What is the demolition man demolishing? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll toss you that question. Right? Well, that's what do you think? Yeah. well, it's a it's, you know, uh, uh, it's it's preconceptions, really. Is <laughs> it's your it's your bourgeois ideas of of uh, of good and evil. I mean, the 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 sort of the stock moment of like, what is the demolition man and and why is he called that is the the bit of historical footage that's that's shown. So oh, I, I love pa- it so much. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> Pausing only to say that that like that multi languages uh, thing is actually not unlike real Los Angeles today, right? Like there there are there are just stock bits of Spanish that slip that are you know part of the the city's language, especially around food culture. You know, especially at at street vendors. And by the way, like street vendors are a, a hotly contested topic uh, here because they're a sort of important part of the food culture and and are are you know cracked down on with various kinds of techniques and regularity by the the authorities who do not want you to eat that bacon wrapped hot dog outside of the Dodger game. Um, (laughs) 
but uh yeah so it's a so in in the future i think this is like some of the research that sandra bullock has done on the sylvester stallone character that uh what do they call him the demolition man well there's this this news footage uh and it's he's rescued a a a little girl from a a mall or something where she had been being held hostage and uh the reporter asks Sylvester Stallone, who's, you know, heroically carrying the girl out of the rubble, what, what, what is, what is the virtue in, or why, why was it necessary to destroy a $7 million mall to rescue a girl when her ransom, her ransom demand was only $25,000? And his response is, F you, lady. No, 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 it's not his response. It's uh, the little girl's oh, response. Oh, <laughs> wow. The little girl. The I little transpose girl. that. That is so yeah. much better than the version that I remembered. Yeah. The little girl just sort of turns to the lady and and sasses her with full-on curse words. Yeah. And she's like, he saved my life. You know, like, <laughs> how dare you? How dare you think that the difference in cost between the mall and my ransom is like the salient th- piece of information in this situation? Yeah. How dare you a- maximize economic utility when what we're really talking about is the life of a human being, and namely the life of me, which I weigh a great deal more <laughs> to myself than I do money right <laughs> right and that yeah right some some abstract idea of you know a, of a real estate uh you know the value of the value of real estate which is doubtless insured uh that right and that's to a certain extent right that's that's what he uh that's what he demolishes, right? Like everything, like he, he demolishes, uh, prudence, right? Mm -hmm. Like he demolishes economic rationality, you know, uh, he he demolishes the idea that you shouldn't, uh, uh, that you shouldn't eat salt if, if you know, it's going to be, to be bad for you, right? Like he, he demolishes joylessness. Um, and, and to a certain extent, like he, he demolishes property to the extent that like property is, uh, is a symbol of all of those things. I mean, I, I, I name checked civilization and its discontents earlier. Civilization and its discontents is the work by freud where like he uh he talks about the kind of the necessary uh contradiction in civilization right it's the thing that keeps us safe from our own sort of like murdering sex crazed nature right but it's also in in doing that um it also gives rise to a kind of a perpetual state of uh a perpetual state of discontent because you can't you can't really act in accordance with with your drives you know you really have to you really have to sort of suppress um your drives and like he is he's related sort of to the idea of a cowboy and the way we've uh, analyzed it on overthinking it and that like the society sometimes depends on him but he he is unstable within he he is destabilizing inside the society but he's also related to the idea that like you can't um you can you can only kind of legislate prudence for so long before someone starts to uh 
you know, before someone starts to want to misbehave and that like, he sort of belongs, he, he, his spiritual twin is, uh, the Dennis Leary character, Edgar friendly, right? Just as the Wesley Snipes, uh, character spiritual twin is, is Raymond Cocteau, Dr. Raymond Cocteau, um, that the, the sort of Spartan friendly axis and the, the Phoenix Cocteau axis are, uh, are opposed to each other other in sort of in you know sort of varieties of like uh collectivism versus individualism i guess collectivism pete collectivism is what he demolishes he goes into multi-person institutions rules gatherings identity some sort of thing that can be identified that comes to represent more than one person uh, or, or hang over more than one person. And he collapses the thing in order to extract the person I, is, is I, another way of characterizing it. There's there's a great line. There's a great line. In this, there's so many great lines in this movie where uh, the, he's seen Dennis Leary and his Mad Max underneath Bumderdome. You know, they've, they've come out of the sewers to rob a Taco Bell truck. Uh, by the way, we should mention Taco Bell is the only <laughs> the only restaurant in the future because it won the franchise wars. Going to dinner and going to Taco Bell are synonymous, uh, and you can unpack that a little bit more in just a second, Matt. But but um, but he sees them stealing from the van, and he raises the question in anger to his elite uh, compatriots or his elite companions at the moment. One of whom is Dr. Cocteau himself because they, Dr. Cocteau is trying to be buddy, buddy with him at the moment, at the, at the, at that moment to try to keep his enemies closer, I suppose. And he says that, uh, you know, violence is not good, right? <laughs> like violence isn't great. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, you know, sometimes it's good in the sense that it's sometimes in rare occasions it's necessary, but like, the the wild west it what he says he says you know the wild west isn't good and the wild west wasn't even the wild west right and it's certainly not good to be violent against people who are just trying to feed themselves and so there's this interesting self incrimination well Sylvester Stone takes a moment to be like no don't solve your problems with violence that's crazy right uh Whereas at the same time, he's the guy who solves all his problems with violence. But then you sort of interrogate that more. And he says, look, I just do my job. Right. And and uh, and that's an interesting way for him to look at it, because the job is also an extrapolated way of uh, thinking about what multiple people can do. And so the idea of jobs themselves could be something that could be collapsed. But for him, it seems more like a personal sort of vocation. And he plays this particular role that he has to go and save the people and help the people and fight the bad guy. And that's what sort of motivates him to go forward. And the impact that it has on society is not really something he's hugely concerned with. But even he knows enough to know that driving a car through a plate glass window is like not something that you should do if you could avoid it. But at the same time, not something that you should hesitate to do if it's necessary. And that requires a certain kind of uh, analysis in this situation and a perspective on behalf of the one doing the analysis that is uh, difficult to verify with any sort of confidence and independence by a civilian. Right. Like, oh, yeah, of course, that guy could drive the Oldsmobile through the last window he's one of the good ones right like that guy can't do it he's one of the bad ones and then it starts getting racist right and then you have like well the white guy can do it and the black guy can't do it and then it's the question of like well is this about sylvester sloan being the good guy because he's white and wasn't being the bad guy because he's bad uh, because he's black or is it about like you know cocteau also being a bad guy but not being acknowledged as a bad guy or thought of as a bad guy and that actually being a bigger problem because he's white 
right. It's just it's all very interesting. But anyway, Matt, do you want to talk about uh, Taco Bell at all? Well, because or, he's. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I you know make a make a run for the border. I you know. <laughs> No, I, I, uh, it's, I, I don't think there's a ton of that. I, I think it was like, it was perceived to be a low quality fast food restaurant. Um, I mean, in California, this may be just a Western chain, but Del Taco is a much better fast food, <laughs> fast food taco. If you want, uh, if you want a fast food taco, but like, I think it was, I, I think it was just a stand in for a very low quality, uh, food chain. But I do like the idea that, that the restaurant wars lead to one, um, one restaurant being dominant, right? Like Mark said that capitalism tends toward monopoly. Uh, and that though, you know, he, he may have been wrong about a number any number of things or or inaccurate at least he he was right about that you know i mean we're not we're not that far away from i mean i I don't know if you consider where the food is sourced and the small number of kind of like agribusiness conglomerates that a lot of it flows through we're not that far from all food being taco bell that's true that's true and they've also you know the the models of these different restaurants as they come out with them get spread around and they it runs similarly. But I guess another dimension is that the world of Cocteau is a world bred out of horrible catastrophe. I think that that is another angle in this movie that is slipped just a little bit under the surface because it and that's part of how it plays. Right. Is it has this surface level plot that's really fun that we've talked about a bunch of times. But one of the layers that gets slipped under there is like, oh, there was a huge earthquake, the big one in what twenty ten. Yeah, and it, it and it's implied that it killed like most of the population. Of still, California. still coming, by the way. Big <laughs> earthquake on the San Andreas Fault. Uh, not really where I live, but there are whole parts of the city that are going to be uh, going to be really done in by something called liquefaction. <laughs> Which is oh. which does not sound fun. Um, so by the you way, know. you can watch the documentary San Andreas starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson <laughs> for real life footage of these events as they happen. <laughs> well, Pete, let's let's maybe close the uh, let's maybe close the book on on Demolition Man. I'm I'm very glad. You know, I like to read the classics. I like yeah. to experience the classics, and like I'm I'm very glad. And and uh, it's definitely up there with the Wizard of Oz, another film that we did in in this style. And I'm glad that we're not so yoked to the uh, to the blockbuster of the minute that we can't really go back in the canon and uh, revisit the works that that, you know, the 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 great the great seminal works of, of film art that make the medium such a, a wonderful and uh, a beautiful place to visit, you know. Oh yeah, no, definitely. I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that we are not so yoked, and I am glad that Sylvester Stallone is so yoked. Because <laughs> I, that way, you know, you saw motion him. pictures of his wax museum statue or whatever was in that block of ice. <laughs> you saw, you saw him shirtless in this movie, right? Oh yeah, when he goes into the cryo thing, and I thought, wow, he looks admirably non-roided out. Yeah, <laughs> he has he has a like recognizable, attainable human physique. Not that it would be easy. Clearly, he worked hard for it. Like you know, he's looking good, but not he does he doesn't look like a, a, a I don't know cartoon caricature of masculinity. Uh, Which is funny because he did a ton of roids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
almost certainly, right? Yeah. Back during the Rambo two days, I think he was like caught with them in Australia or something. Oh, was he? Well, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But 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 no, I know what you mean. Like relative to modern standards, it's like a very human sort of body. Yeah, it's uh, well, yeah, because it's not. It's he doesn't have like uh, super. He doesn't have like pec implants or implant looking pecs. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a, that are that are a thing. Yeah. Um, hey, Pete. Uh, uh, Here's here's a funny thing. Uh, despite our best efforts, people keep leaving comments on the show notes. <laughs> we love when people leave comments on the I, show notes. What we are you talking we, about? we love it, but I, I I think it's wonderful, and I you know we hop in there from time to time and and uh, mix it up together in a big discussion. But but I I have to confess, and I take responsibility for my part in this that that we have not necessarily done everything we can to encourage this or to kind of lift up or support the people. Uh, the people who do so, you know, maybe this will become a more regular thing. But let's uh, let's open up the comments section, read some comments, and uh, and see if we uh, have anything that we want to say in response, or if we just uh, let the let the comments stand as the voice yeah. of the listeners on the podcast. Sound okay? Sounds great. Let's add a comment section. Great. <laughs> well, the comment section is already there. If you go to <laughs> overthinkingit.com, click on the uh, click on the title of this episode. You'll go to the uh, you'll go to the show notes and there'll be a place that you can leave a uh, a comment there. So so please do that if you have anything to add on on Demolition Man. Uh, let's just dive in, though, on our, our last episode, 527. You want this, so we will give you this. It was a pre-tape, so uh, I can't quite remember. I can't quite call to mind the feeling of recording it with you the way you can <laughs> with the ones that were actually just a week ago. But, uh, but we talked about uh, summer concert season and the experience of concert going. Liffer, writes in with a uh, an in a way member by the way thank you very much Liffer, for that for supporting overthinking it writes in with a well actually uh, the van's warp tour which we referenced in the episode the van's warp tour is only just barely quote still going on end quote it ended yesterday the day this podcast episode was released well Liffer, sick transit gloria mundi um sick transit gloria skate shoe and uh you know it is that's... it is the it is the ideal death of every van to drive off into the sunset right yes yeah. so... <laughs> um yeah. let's see let's, let's i'm just gonna go down all of these john c writes in uh, uh referencing the title of the episode it seems like a lot of pop culture has adopted the concert or encore mentality over the years especially to television everything is a capital e event that's artificially limited to a season that mostly uh doesn't matter shout outs to the fans have been common for a while uh which is kind of like saying you're the best the best crowd in the world is st louis and uh there's encore after encore often some weird combination of mutual love for the classic material and going through the motions akin to some sort of contractual obligation referencing what i said about the contractual obligation to play the hits at, at a concert uh it does seem like a matter of time before we're faced with a special event how i met your mother curtain call where we're assured that the the fans are the best fans in the world now that i think about it though i could definitely imagine myself going to watch a sitcom on tour oh oh john you've you've cracked something i think that's uh (laughs) especially something barney miller ish that's so well built for a stage um and then uh, he talks about Pirates of Penzance with Hal Linden that that he saw uh, that he saw years ago. Ooh, Pete, is there a, is there a sitcom where you would pay to see the live version of it? 
Oh, I mean, what I was thinking was that they should do a thing with Stranger Things where they have another episode ready, but they have to get a certain number of likes or donations before they're willing to make it available to people. So it's like an encore. You got an extra episode. But if there's a sitcom that they should tour, it should be the Frasier reboot. Yes. They should make it a live show, whatever it is, whatever new premise it's going to have. The Frasier, if it's a reboot, maybe it's a soft reboot, maybe it's a gritty reboot where Frasier is less of a psychiatrist and more of a knife-wielding cobbler i don't know what happens. Uh, <laughs> i'm hello seattle i'm listening uh, <laughs> but yes that, Fra- that acquires a, like a lot. really sinister valence when you imagine him <laughs> you know holding a weapon in his hand when he says i'm listening I'd like to see an itinerant stage put up at every major American monument and have an episode of Frasier performed in telecast and streamed live from that place. So we'll have an episode of Frasier done in front of Mount Rushmore, an episode of Frasier done in front of the Seattle Space Needle. That could be the season premiere because they leave Seattle. And then we could do it on the National Mall, uh, maybe in front of the Lincoln Memorial, something like that. Yeah. We'll, we'll do it. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Frasier all over the world. Um, Random confesses his undying love for Haley Kiyoko uh, in order to make me feel better about my undying love for for Tori Amos. Random, let me tell you, never apologize for the music that you love. You you just play it. You crank it. You roll down the windows and make the whole neighborhood listen to it. You rock out to uh, whatever sounds uh, make your heart beat a little faster. And finally, Benjamin writes in to say we caught stevie wonder this weekend in vegas yeah i know that sounds great an equally virtuosic he says an earnest show and i was guessing that there would be no encores mostly due to the fact that it took two backup singers uh plus johnny gill who came up on stage out of the audience to my delight just to guide the legend off of the stage but we clapped and we cheered and guess what stevie came back and did a bruno mars song for us i was fooled despite myself or i wanted to be fooled Either way, it was great theater. Benjamin goes on to say, in my personal headcanon, the overthinking at Encore would be, this podcast is ruined, the refrain from the Edge of Tomorrow (laughs) review. And the podcast team would triumphantly return to review Super Bowl commercials. But if the audience is feeling it so much that a deep cut second Encore is warranted, Mark Lee lecturing the listeners that the Marvel Cinematic Universe will never be a thing. (laughs) is the track for the old heads who rode for overthinking it before it was cool uh well thank you very much benjamin we like i love to be reminded of all of those uh all of those all of those deep cuts and the stevie wonder concert sounds amazing doesn't it pete oh yeah yeah 100 um i I, just one small quibble which is that uh we're still not cool <laughs> less cool, less cool than ever with every passing day. In fact, we go back to the the action movies of the '90s and and rewatch them uh, for fun. Um, well, that, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good assortment of letters in the mailbag, isn't it? Yeah, that's. I think that's great. I think it's a nice little segment to add because you know maybe people aren't engaging on the site as much, and and maybe we can uh, put it in people's ears a little bit. We can yeah. keep the conversation going. Well, engagement on a site is like a thing. You know, we don't really do like Facebook or something. We're not. We're not like Instagram live streaming or whatever. Yeah. And so, like, you know, I can't. I can't say to you like mash that heart, fam. 
<laughs> Slam that subscribe button and hit that like button with your forehead. Exactly. I can't do that. I can't do that. But, uh, you know, and uh, you know what? If you have questions or anything you want, head, uh, head on into the comments. You can leave them there. You can also email uh, podcast at overthinkingit.com or, you know, the podcast voicemail still operates. We we got one actually uh, recently. It was it was private, and I sent it on to the overthinker who it was directed at. But uh, it's two zero three two eight five six four six four zero one two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Or you can uh, I guess record a voice memo and email it to podcast at overthinking We we love to hear from you. So uh, uh, leave a comment on the show notes. We'll be back next week with more overthinking and podcast. Thank you for listening and. Thank you for talking with me. It's a pleasure. Uh, I will play the snipes to your Stallone anytime. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Always, always a joy. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Yeah, we didn't tell him how to use the three seashells. Oh, I forgot <laughs> to tell him how. I mean, can you b- believe that they don't know how to use I, the three seashells? I mean, can you believe they don't know how to use the three seashells? Oh, my I, goodness. If only we had a couple more minutes in this podcast <laughs> to explain it to everybody and solve that mystery forever. Uh, unfortunately, we don't. <laughs>